Welcome to Wisdom Talk Radio, a collaborative community of explorers in conscious living. The upheaval that people are experiencing around the world points to a potential for change in ways that our collective imagination may be only beginning to recognize. We need more than traditional views of, well, of anything, everything, to be able to meet the challenges that are before us. We are extremely fortunate to have renowned biologist Rupert Sheldrake with us today, who throughout his career has continually brought us new ways of thinking and experiencing. I'm Laurie Seymour, host of Wisdom Talk Radio and CEO and founder of the Baca Institute. Head there to discover your creative advantage by taking the Creative Innovator Quiz. Find out your personal Creative Innovator style so you can open your flow and make everything in life easier. For visionaries, innovators, company founders, and product designers, optimize your ability to create more in less time while enjoying every minute. Dr. Rupert Sheldrake is a biologist and author of more than 90 technical papers and 14 books, including Science Set Free and The Physics of Angels. After studying at Cambridge and Harvard universities, he worked in Hyderabad, India as principal plant physiologist and lived for two years in the Benedictine ashram of Father Bede Griffiths. He was director of the Parrot-Warwick Project for the Study of Unexplained Human and Animal Abilities, funded by Trinity College, Cambridge. Dr. Sheldrick is currently a fellow of the Institute of Noetic Sciences in California and of Schumacher College in the UK. Welcome, Rupert Sheldrake. I am so pleased that you were willing to be here today. And, you know, you're coming here from the UK. I'm here in Denver. And we still get to do it on the magic of Zoom. Mm, very good to be with you, Laurie. So <laughs> it's been 40 years since you wrote The New Science of Life. What, in your opinion, has been the most important advance that has happened since the publication of that book? That was such a foundational book. Well, in that book, I try to give the reasons for thinking biology should be done more holistically, the idea of morpho morphogenetic fields mm -hmm. and morphic resonance, memory and nature. And when I first wrote it, uh, the biggest problem I had was that most people within the scientific world reacted by saying, not that it was wrong, no one's ever refuted anything I said, or uh, that it was, uh, but that it was unnecessary. That was the main problem I had. People said it's unnecessary, and so I said, "Why?" And they said, "Well, you know, we're on the threshold of this genetics revolution. Uh, this led to the genome project. We're going to sequence all these genes. Uh, we're going to solve the problems of life in terms of molecular biology." Um, and that's why billions of dollars were put into the Human Genome Project, which was announced in the year 2000. And the whole course of biology was shifted into this very molecular direction. Mm -hmm. uh, I was started out as a biochemist, and you know, I was I, and I was friendly with Francis Crick and the, mm -hmm. the founding fathers of molecular biology, mm -hmm. and I knew them well. So I knew that world 
And it was precisely because I knew that world so well that I thought that it was not going to work. And that's why I felt this impulse to try and develop A New Science of Life, the title of my first book, which in the US in its third edition is retitled Morphic Resonance. Um, so the what's happened is that the uh, after the genome project, people started sequencing tens of thousands of genomes. And then they discovered something that I predicted actually in the early 80s, that genes were grossly overrated, that they didn't code for most of the things they were supposed to. And within, by about the year 2010, um, the missing heritability problem had become a big issue in the center of biology. Um, genes, uh, looking at people's genomes, uh, enables you to predict their likelihood to get, say, breast cancer with mm-hmm. under 10% accuracy. And, you know, for mental schizophrenia, it's less than 10%. They'd expected it to be 80 or 90%. Um, even the prediction of height, you, you can, about 50 genes are involved in uh, affecting height. And you can only predict height on the basis of genomes with an accuracy of about 10%. So about 80% of inheritance is unexplained. That's why it's called the missing heritability problem. Mm-hmm. So that's one huge change. The fact that there's now a widespread acknowledgement that inheritance isn't all just a matter of genes. The second really big change has happened again in the last 20 years. Um, in the 20th century, as you'll remember, the the biggest taboo in biology was the inheritance of acquired characters, so-called Lamarckian inheritance. This was ultimate heresy. It was orthodox in the Soviet Union, and that's one reason that it was so polarized in the West. You know, they were wrong, we were right. (laughs) And so this politicized um, d- d- debate in, in biology. It wasn't really a debate. It was just everything to do with the inheritance of acquired characters with branded heresy. Since morphic resonance leads to the inheritance of acquired characters, this was a reason why my book was treated as heretical, a whole mm-hmm. idea of morphic resonance. Well, since the year 2000, it's become apparent that there is indeed an inheritance of acquired characters. The Soviet biologists were right. Um, they, they were claiming they, that characteristics acquired by plants and animals could be passed on to their offspring, and they can. But it's been rebranded epigenetic inheritance, mm-hmm. and now it's one of the hottest areas in biology. So that does help to account for some of the inheritance uh, that genes don't explain, but probably not more than 5% or so. Mm-hmm. I think the rest is actually because of morphic resonance, a collective memory uh, that each species has mm-hmm. inherited from the ancestors. So I would say that's one of the areas where changes in the last 40 years have opened up in, in a way that um, makes the idea of morphic resonance much more relevant rather than less relevant. In, in, the, in the 1980s, people just couldn't believe there was a problem. They thought I was addressing a Mm -hmm, mm non-problem, that everything would be fixed very soon. And this wasn't just people saying it, and people were investing billions of dollars of public money and private money Mm -hmm. in in this project. So it it wasn't just sort of an armchair speculation. It distorted the training of biologists because all the jobs were in biotechnology and genetic engineering. So all the universities switched over to molecular biology as their primary focus. And um, 
uh, it, it had a massive effect. Um, we're now coming out of that tunnel, thank goodness. Um, another point uh, that uh, I was making is that the, there are serious problems in the understanding of the development of form. And again, there's now a much more open atmosphere for discussing that, because again, they thought we'll get that, we'll fix all that just in terms of genetic programs. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's not the case. And thirdly, evolutionary theory in the 1980s was completely dominated by neo-Darwinism, the mm -hmm. selfish gene theory. Um, it's, all, it's all about gene frequencies, random changes in genes and changes in gene frequencies. Well, now, with epigenetic inheritance, uh, that completely changes evolutionary theory. Neo-Darwinism is now extremely sort of limited and old-fashioned, and it's, it's hard to believe that anyone really believed that was the exclusive truth. Of course, genes have a role to play, but what we have now is a ferment in evolutionary theory with the introduction of what's called the extended evolutionary synthesis which I discuss in my book, Science Set Free. Mm -hmm. um, and this, um, again, this has led to a greater openness. So I would say that almost in, every, in almost every way, the ideas I was putting forward in that book are much closer to what's now happening in science. Mm -hmm. and things are opening up. Morphic resonance is still treated as a heresy by many people, but... Um, it's, it's, again, becoming more acceptable to discuss. Within astronomy, for example, and cosmology, Lee Smolin, the Canadian-American or American-Canadian astronomer or theoretical physicist, has now suggested that the so-called laws of nature may be more like habits. Well, that's what I've been saying all along. Mm -hmm. But in an evolving cosmos, it makes sense to think that the regularities evolve. And I love that uh, the whole, uh, well, it's more than a notion, what has become evident now is the, the universe as inherently creative, as ever-evolving. Um, so I, I want to shift a, a bit with that idea um, and ask you about what role you, you feel angels or creative intelligence play in the evolutionary process. Well, I got interested in um, the nature of angels because I got interested in what would now be called a panpsychist worldview, the idea that there's consciousness or mind at many levels of organization. Mm -hmm. And again, one of the things that's changed in the last 40 years is, uh, quite recently really, in the last 15 years, uh, an openness in philosophy, in academic philosophy, to panpsychism, the idea of mind or consciousness throughout all nature, not just mm -hmm. confined to human brains. Um, so I've been interested for a long time in the idea that the sun might be conscious, the whole solar system and planets like Mother Earth, Gaia, might have a kind of consciousness, and the galaxy might have a galactic mind, um, and the entire cosmos may have a co cosmic mind. So what this does is raise the question of forms of intelligence or consciousness beyond the human level. Mm -hmm. And then I realized this isn't a new idea. It's actually what our ancestors believed. Mm -hmm. um, that the, the idea of angels in the Middle Ages, as described by St. Thomas Aquinas, for example, and, and of course it's based in the Jewish and, and the Islamic and the Christian tradition, 
There are angels everywhere. And in Hinduism, you have them too. They're called devas, the shining ones. Um, so there are all these intelligent beings. Now, most people dismiss them, most so-called rational, educated people dismiss angels thinking that it's a childish fantasy, the, these figures in stained glass windows with wings. Um, they see them at best uh, as a poetic imagination. Um, but what if the stars have intelligence? Each one of them has an intelligence, and that's exactly what the ancient Greeks thought. Plato called the stars and the planets the visible gods. Mm -hmm. um, because they're visible, we see them in the sky, they have bodies, heavenly bodies, uh, but they also have minds and intelligence. And in the Middle Ages, the official teaching in the Roman Church and in the universities of Europe, based on Aristotle, was that the stars and the planets are living beings with souls and angelic intelligences. Um, so I, my book, The Physics of Angels, which I wrote with um, Matthew Fox, the theologian, um, looks at these traditional theories of angels in the West. Dionysus, the Areopagite, a 6th century Syrian mystic um, uh, monk. Um, Hildegard of Bingen, mm -hmm. uh, the visionary abbess, medieval abbess, and St. Thomas Aquinas. And what we're looking at there is what people thought about angels then. And this is very different, it turns out, from what you read in angel literature today. I mean, much angel literature, particularly in the US, it is very personalized. You know, but someone's mm -hmm. car breaks down, a mysterious figure appears and fixes it and then vanishes. And it's a kind of guardian angel figure. Uh, well, these things happen, I'm sure. People do have these. But the, the point about the angels in the older worldview is that they're cosmic, the organizing intelligences of the cosmos. And Alfred Russell Wallace, who with Charles Darwin um, co-discovered the principle of natural selection, um, was convinced that the evolutionary process was actually guided intelligently by um, angelic spirits. I mean, it's, we hear a lot about Darwin's gloomy materialism, but we don't hear much about Russell's, Russell Wallace's, Alfred Russell Wallace's theory of angelic guidance of evolution. Mm -hmm. So... All these, these are things that are, make me very interested in angels. Now, none of this uh, suggests that they're hermaphroditic figures with wings. Mm -hmm. What it suggests is that it's a way in which our culture has thought about intelligences beyond the human level. Yeah. And in common with other cultures, I mean, shamanic cultures have the idea of numerous spirits, not all good, and that's true of angels too, because mm -hmm. uh, you know Satan is the chief of the fallen angels, and um, you know the idea is that these these represent destructive forces on the earth. One of Satan's henchmen and one of his generals, as it were, was Mammon, mm -hmm. and Mammon's obsessed with gold and greed and power and his own glory, and. We thought, are there any people in the world today who are obsessed with their own glory, greed, power, and gold? Well, I can think of one straight off, you know, in the White House. Um, mm -hmm. um, and when we see this, uh, the powers, the, these, the enchantments of mammon as actual enchantments that uh, hold us in their spell, um, our whole cultures are enchanted by mammon, really. Um, all these things begin to make sense in a new way. So those are the kinds of issues I'm interested in, mm -hmm. about angels, less so 
in the kind of personal stories. Right. No, I, I'm I'm really asking about that in in the re, in relationship to to what I think of as the co-creative process. That um, there is inspiration. There is that re- way in which we receive a great idea, an yeah. inspired idea, and. And I'm I'm interested in how you speak about angels being a part of that angels slash um, the divine. You know that that we are yes. the the co-workers, the the co-creators with the divine. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think that we can be helped. I mean, inspiration literally means breathing into. And mm-hmm. if you're going to be inspired, you have to believe that there's something that can inspire you. Mm-hmm. The point about materialism and modernist art and that sort of thing is that it's because it's atheistic and it completely eliminates the spiritual dimension from the worldview it's literally uninspired because there's you can't ask for inspiration to from a mechanical dead cosmos that's just mm-hmm. running blindly by chance um, but of course for anyone who has a spiritual life there are uh, not just one, but many forms of possible inspiration. I mean, there are our own guiding spirits, what the ancients called the genius. Each person had their own genius. It didn't mean they were a genius. It meant they had a spirit that guided them. And it's very similar to the idea of guardian angels um, that can inspire and help us. And I do think that we have something like that. Mm-hmm. And then... Um, one can, of course, pray for inspiration, and in the Christian tradition, uh, the Holy Spirit is the ultimate divine spirit. And that, of course, comes out of the Jewish tradition, where the creative spirit is the creative work of God in the cosmos, right there at the beginning of the book of Genesis. The spirit of God breathed on the face of the deep, you know, the, the wind blowing over the ocean, sort of face of the waters, creating waves. And then God spoke, said, that's God speaking, and to speak you have to have an outflow of breath. So mm-hmm. there's an implicit um, presence of the spirit as, as the breath or the breathing principle, the energetic principle, right from the very beginning of the book of Genesis. It runs through the whole Judeo-Christian tradition. Um, I, I always love the, the, uh, w- the way in which I think about the breath as the intelligence of God the intelligence of the universe. And, you know, we wouldn't be able to direct the breath in, in all of the, the magic, the, the biology that it does. Absolutely. Yes, I think that the, you know, God's works in, in, in the Jewish and the Christian tradition through, through breath and through speaking, through words, in the Christian Holy Trinity, the Logos, the second person of the Holy Trinity, is really the principle of words, form, order, structure, meaning. Um, whereas the breath, the spirit, is the energetic principle, what we recognize as the energy in nature, that which gives things uh, their activity and power. Um, and this is reflected in the whole of the, uh, of the in the whole of the universe. So I think this understanding that's present in, in the Jewish and the Christian and the Islamic traditions too is, is, is a very powerful way of thinking about it. And there are parallels, of course, in other traditions, like in Hinduism with the idea of Satchit and Nanda. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, so I think that these, these are fundamentally... Um, this fundamental way of thinking of ultimate consciousness as involving 
a ground of being principle of form order structure and energy or breath or flow is is found all over the world and i think it is actually the ultimate way of thinking about consciousness and nature mm -hmm. I, I agree and and for me in in my work i i it feels so essential to if we're going to be creating if we're going to be doing anything um to address an issue to address a problem if we're wanting to be to to innovate a, a solution we have to have all of those pieces and we have to have that you know that breath of god if you will mm. um, that that consciousness in order to do that in a way that really addresses the whole yeah well i agree and and i think that uh, for me at least and, and traditionally an important part of that is asking for that inspiration mm -hmm which one can do in various ways. But I mean, I for one, I pray every day, for example, and many people pray on a regular basis. And um, one, of the, one of the effects of prayer is to open oneself up to the, these creative principles. In my latest book, Ways to Go Beyond and Why They Work, I discuss mm -hmm. prayer as compared with meditation. Mm -hmm. And petitionary prayer, um, is I think of them as being complementary to each other. Meditation withdraw your attention from the world around you, and from your thoughts and worries, ruminations, and get to the ground of consciousness itself, the basis of our mind, the the basis of consciousness. Whereas in petitionary prayer works the other way around. You start by invoking the spiritual being you're praying to, mm. God the Father, or the Holy Spirit or Jesus, if one's a Christian, there's three ways one can address God. And then, or one can pray to the angels or to the saints. Um, um, so there's many ways of praying, but all of them involve connecting with a greater spiritual power or presence than one's own, and then directing attention towards things, problems in the world, or problems one wants to solve, or mm -hmm. asking for inspiration. Um, so asking is the best way of receiving, I think, and, and sometimes it happens spontaneously, but I think asking through prayer is a very important part of this process for many people, including me. I really appreciate that because I, I teach a lot about receiving, and I, I, I'm a meditation teacher, and it, the way in which I work with meditation and with energy is about that, that active receiving, so I'm always saying it's not passive. But you're bringing in a whole other element that is is certainly active um, in that act of petitionary prayer mm. of asking for that guidance, asking to receive, asking for what it is that no, it's not about necessarily what you're needing to you know do in a, in a, in a mundane sense, although it may be, but it mm. also can be in that sense of here's an issue that I need to address that mm. I want to address and help me to see how that could happen. Yes, exactly that, you see. That's why I think it's complementary to meditation. Mm -hmm. I, I do both. Mm -hmm. I meditate in the mornings and I pray in the evenings. Mm -hmm. um, because meditation takes you away from the problems of your, of your life and, and concerns to, to get to a space that's not about what the immediate mm -hmm. pressing problems are. Mm -hmm. So... Um, but prayer is the opposite. It's connecting the spiritual world with 
the problem, you know, people who are sick, that you know, problems in the world, you know, problems in one's own life. Um, and so it's much more directing intention towards these problems and asking for help. So mm-hmm. it's, it's the opposite direction. It's like breathing in and breathing out. Petitionary <laughs> mm-hmm. prayer is like breathing out and meditation mm-hmm. is like breathing in. Which takes us back to the spirit again, of course. Yeah, exactly, and and that connection, and and uh, you know, and, I, and I'm thinking about the Treya meditation process that I work with because I don't see it necessarily taking you away from the problems. It's mm-hmm. more like being able to open up to that that energy so that you can receive those answers, even mm-hmm. to, to questions you may not know you had. Mm-hmm. Mm. So it's just an interesting way to think about it that I really appreciate. Thank you for bringing that forward. Um, so do you feel, you've already said that you feel like consciousness is not confined to this planet. I mean, they, we have the, mm. the, the, the cosmos, the cosmic consciousness of the cosmos. Mm. Um, do you think angels operate in the universe as opposed oh, yes. to just on Earth? Oh, no, not just on Earth. I mean, the medieval view, which I mean, I, I started, I mentioned this work I'd done with Matthew Fox, looking at Aquinas and so on. And th- they were absolutely clear, these are cosmic powers. Mm-hmm. This is not a sort of modern, new agey interpretation. This is a standard um, interpretation from sort of some of the mainstream of Western thought. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, the stars, as I said, Plato thought of them as visible gods, and I think the stars are conscious. And I do think that those stellar consciousnesses are what they meant by angels, and they're not what people mean by angels if they think of, you know, stained glass windows. But um, in the classification of angels in, in Dionysius, the Areopagite, and in Thomas Aquinas, there are nine levels of angels. There the top three. Um, cherubim, seraphim, Mm -hmm. and thrones are like cosmic archetypes. The cherubim are the angels of divine knowledge, the seraphim, the angels of divine love, and the thrones, the angels of divine presence. Mm -hmm. And obviously the angels of divine presence or love can't fall. Satan was a cherub. Um, He was one of the cherubim. and if you're involved, knowledge can go wrong. And that's why the tree of knowledge of good and evil in the Garden of Eden. I mean, knowledge can be used in a, in a negative way, in the way that love and the divine presence can't. But those are like cosmic principles. And then the next three levels of angels, which are called choirs of angels, because they're musical beings and, and resonant beings, dominions, virtues, and powers, are the angels that look after the cosmos. They look after the the stars, the planets, and so on. They're the cosmic angels. And in terms of modern cosmology, you could say that some of them look after planets, others look after stars and solar systems, and others galaxies, because they're a kind of hierarchical organization. And then the kinds of angels that are engaged in things on Earth, the organizing principles here are principalities, archangels, and angels. And the principalities deal with huge regions of the Earth, like continents, archangels with groups of people, like the archangel Michael is a protector of the Jewish people, according to this tradition. Um, 
and has other roles as well. And then angels uh, would include, look after particular people, beings, species of animals and plants and so on. So some are terrestrial in their scope and some are cosmic. Mm-hmm. And I think that when we look at this in a panpsychist point of view, um, then we can say there are levels of consciousness and intelligence at every level in nature, from the cosmos as a whole down to the smallest subatomic particle. Mm-hmm. And that has huge implications. Huge implications, yes. Yes. I, I just want to um, bring it in a slightly different direction. Well, really, it's not a different direction, but in terms of what we could learn from animals, because that's been um, a, a focus of yours. Oh, definitely. In fact, in my book, Ways to Go Beyond and Why They Work, the latest book, mm-hmm. um, which looks like this. <laughs> um, um, I have a chapter called Learning from Animals, mm-hmm. and the, the, um, I think we can learn a lot of things from animals. First of all, um, and a very simple level, they bring us into the present. One of the points of meditation and many other spiritual practices is to be in the present, be here now. Mm-hmm. And Most of us aren't in the present most of the time. We're worrying about the future, having regrets about the past, or that sort of thing. I mean, our discursive minds, the the default mode network in in our brains, concerned with rumination, um, is all about being out of the present, you know, where you're, what you're going to do next, what you're going to buy next, where you've got to be, the next appointment, and where you're going on holiday, that sort of thing. Um, well, animals don't have that kind of preoccupation with the future because they don't have language and they don't have our kind of discursive, inner, worrying-type minds. So they, they are in the present a lot of the time. So when a cat's sitting purring on your lap, it's totally in the present. It's not trying to be somewhere else. It's being where it is. And mm-hmm. so by stroking it and, and being with it as it purrs, it can bring you into the present. And you know, a dog that wants to play with you and wants you to throw a ball for it to retrieve, it, eagerly looking up at you, it's, it's, it's totally in the present and it brings you into its presence, into the present. And I think that's one reason why so many millions of people keep pets. I mean, pets mm-hmm. are expensive, time-consuming. Having a dog is a nuisance. You have Nowadays, the protocol, you have to carry a plastic bag and pick up the poo. I mean, it's, it's, there's lots of downsides. Veterinary bills are huge, exorbitant in many cases. I mean, all these are downsides. So why do people have them? They don't need them for economic reasons like farmers used mm-hmm. to. Um, they have them because they help be in the present. Yeah. And I think another thing that animals show to us is the power of psychic uh, abilities and they're much more psychic than most people are much more telepathic and intuitive Mm -hmm. Um, and I've done a lot of research on this as you know I wrote a book called dogs that know when their owners are coming home (laughs) and other unexplained powers of animals and um, there are many ways in which dogs cats and other animals parrots horses um, pick up people's intentions. The most testable is dogs that know when their owners are coming home. They wait by a door or window, sometimes 10 minutes, even half an hour in advance. Mm-hmm. 
And in my experiments, we film the place the dog waits. We have people come at non-routine times that they don't know in advance. We tell them by phone when to come. And um, they travel by unfamiliar vehicles, so there's no familiar car sounds or smells. And the dogs still know, and they do this over and over again, and you can record it all on film. So um, what they do is show us much more clearly than our, uh, than our own abilities that these psychic powers are part of our nature as animal nature. They're not some special spiritual thing about people. They're normal, not paranormal, natural, not supernatural. And I think that the um, these... Uh, uh, these are some of the things we can learn from animals. We can also, uh, they also have uh, premonitions and sort of precognitive abilities that we don't have as well, which is why so many animals uh, seem to sense when earthquakes or tsunamis are going to happen sometime. Mm. Mm-hmm. And so all of these are themes I discuss in my book, Dogs That Know When Their Owners Are Coming Home. Um, because I, I think that these learning from animals about these abilities helps us to see that our own telepathic abilities um, and our own intuitive abilities are perfectly normal, natural. They're not spooky. They're not weird. They're not paranormal. It's mm-hmm. a terrible wonderful and paranormal is beyond the normal. Actually, they're part of the mysteries of everyday life. They, yes. you know, dogs knowing when they're into coming home isn't paranormal. 50% of dogs do it. Um, the sense of being stared at isn't paranormal. 90% of people have had that experience. Mm-hmm. Telephone telepathy, thinking of someone who then rings, isn't paranormal. Mm-hmm. It, more than 80% of the population have had this experience. These things are normal. And they're part, they're different though from the spiritual uh, phenomena in the sense that they're about connections with the environment and connections with other members of our social groups there is a horizontal where you could say spiritual things are to do with higher forms of consciousness uh, not so much with you know when someone coming home and but um, but to do with um, you know a larger linking our lives and connecting with something much larger than ourselves yeah, that community sense really mm. Yeah. A greater sense of, well, spiritual things partly link us to communities, which is, I think, one reason why communal worship is important in synagogues and churches and temples, because it brings communities together with a common focus and attention. Um, but uh, also uh, the, the, this connection links us to the rest of the environment. And yeah. in fact, spirituality, spiritual practices, it, seem to me mainly about connection, a greater sense of connection yeah. with each other, with nature, and with forms of consciousness beyond our own. So we, we've gone from the separation that happened in the beginning, and you know we keep moving towards and looking for and discovering the way in which we're connected. Absolutely, yes. Yeah. Thank you, Rupert Sheldrake. You have been... Um, <laughs> So you've been helpful to me. There's been, you know, things that you've offered to me today that I really appreciate. And I know that you have offered uh, wisdom and inspiration to our listening audience. Um, Your books are uh, available. I've received a number of your books through Monkfish Publishing, uh, who has published your latest book, The Ways to Go Beyond, and certainly um, uh, The Physics of Angels and a number of others that you've done, that you've written with others as well. 
Uh, and how else can people uh, find you besides besides in your books, which of well, course they the can. Best, the best thing to do is to go to my website, sheldrake.org, S-H-E-L-D-R-A-K-E.org, O-R-G. Um, because there, there's a huge amount of information, all my scientific papers for anyone who wants the details, mm. peer-reviewed journals, um, books with links of how to buy them on Amazon and elsewhere, um, a lot of videos and podcasts. I have a YouTube channel as well. Um, so there's a vast amount of information there for anyone interested in following up any of this. And mm -hmm. on the website, it's all free, of course. The... Um, so that would be the best port of call. And then through the website, anyone who wants to follow what I'm doing can sign up for my e-newsletter, which I send out about four or five a year. It's just one page email. Mm -hmm. um, it's the simplest way to keep up with what I'm doing for anyone mm -hmm. who wants to follow it in more detail. Yeah. Wonderful. Thank you again, Rupert, for gracing us with your presence. Well, thanks for inviting me. Very good to talk to you. Thank you. And thank you for being with us today at Wisdom Talk Radio. Join us here regularly for more wisdom, discovery, and illumination. And remember, you can find us on your favorite places to listen to podcasts. We're out there on all of them. And if you've enjoyed listening today, please leave us a review because that allows other people to find the wisdom and transformation for themselves. And for more about fast-tracking your ideas to creation and revenue, find me, Laurie Seymour, over at thebacainstitute.com. Thanks for joining us here at Wisdom Talk Radio. We wish you well in your conscious explorations. For more information and to join in the conversation, our website is wisdomtalkradio.com or at Wisdom Talk Radio on Facebook. <laughs>